Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The Sermon on the Mount is more than a great message by the greatest teacher who ever taught. It is a blueprint. It's a constitution for life for the citizen who is called to live in God's kingdom. And Jesus is teaching us the meaning of true righteousness. And remember, the religious leaders of Jesus' day believed and taught that righteousness or true righteousness was something that was external. It was something visible. It was something reflected on the outside by the observances of the law. In other words, righteousness was doing righteous things. It was praying righteous prayers. It was involvement in the rituals of religion. But Jesus is going to demonstrate and that true righteousness is something that is invisible and internal. It's something on the inside rather than on the outside. And many Bible teachers and scholars have referred to these eight principles in chapter 5 as the Beatitudes. The word means blessing and it comes from a Latin word which means to be blessed. And the verses deal with attitudes. What we think in our heart. Our outlook on life. We might think of the Beatitudes as our disposition. It's something on the inside. It's our frame of mind. In legal terms, it's our mental state. The internal condition affects our demeanor, our bearing, our lives. And we might think of these as the character traits or the kingdom attributes of the citizen in the kingdom. What is our attitude about ourself? Well, According to Jesus, we need to recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt and that we have no spiritual resources apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel in verse 3. What should be our attitude about sin? Well, we're to recognize its horror and power and sorrow over sin as we adopt a teachable spirit, a willingness to learn from God and his Holy Spirit, a willingness to learn from others, a refusal, if you will, to, to defend ourselves in our sin in verse 5. And if you look at the passage you begin to discover how Jesus will build his sermon. Since we feel our need and admit our need for God in verse 3, we can express our sorrow over sin in verse 4. We're reachable and teachable in verse 5. We hunger and thirst for the Lord. We long for what he wants us to long for, his righteousness by faith. We seek it. We ask for it by faith. And all the rest of the Beatitudes show the results of that kind of a life, of faith in God and trust in God, lived out in the life of the believer. We become merciful in verse 7. That is, we have a loving and a forgiving spirit. We become pure in heart in verse 8. That means we long to keep our lives pure and clean. Holiness becomes happiness and then we begin to despise all of the substitutes we look for in order to not trust God. We become peacemakers instead of troublemakers. We want peace in our home, in our church, in the world. We make peace by proclaiming the gospel of peace in verse 9. And so when you actually live a life of mercy and purity and peace, it brings persecution in verse 10. Because everyone who wants to live godly lives will suffer persecution according to Jesus. 
Glad in grief, verse 4. Happy in humility, verse 5. Satisfied while starving, in verse 6. We look at this and it all seems so paradoxical. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And on the surface, it looks like a contradiction. But it isn't a contradiction. It is a paradox. You may not understand what a paradox is. Someone once defined it as standing on your head and waving. It's the idea that you're drawing attention to something in an unusual way. What in the world do mourning and happiness have in common? Remember, Jesus has already spoken of a kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as he begins to talk about his kingdom, it isn't like anyone has ever talked about a kingdom before. Usually when you talk about a kingdom, you talk about ethnic borders. You talk about military support. You talk about wealth and resources. You talk about your relationship with other kingdoms. But Jesus is going to ignore political parties and philosophy of sovereignty, he is going to go right into a discussion of the character of the citizens in this kingdom. G. Campbell Morgan says, quote, character creates conditions which result in happiness. And so when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he uses the strongest possible word in the Greek language, To translate this word. There are actually three different Greek words for mourn. We might think of it as that kind of sorrow that happens when something takes place that you need to get over. Like when the Broncos lost to the Super Bowl last year. You mourn the loss, but you get over it. The word that... Jesus used in in this particular sense is not the kind of superficial mourning that takes place because you've experienced a loss and you need to get over it. He's talking about profound grief. He's talking about deep sorrow. He's talking about the kind of mourning that takes place when you lose a loved one. It's that kind of powerful, crushing mourning that you don't get over when your mom dies or when your dad dies or God forbid that one of your children die. It is that crushing, take your breath away kind of mourning. And so when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, you might be tempted to ask the question, what is it that we're mourning? And that would be appropriate because what he's talking about is the kind of profound mourning that takes place as you recognize that there's something wrong inside of you. It is your sin. You see your sin and the sin of others. In verse 3, conviction of sin, we are poor in spirit, brings contrition for sin. We mourn over it. The person who is poor in spirit in verse 3 is that person who's willing to be subject to the king and govern by the king. That means you're not going to be rebellious or a troublemaker or contentious because only a life that is willing to be ruled by the king will be ruled. But you still have this problem of sin. And the person who mourns over sin This is the person who's aware of their failure, aware of their limitations, aware of what it means to be broken. This is the person who's conscious that they're not able to take upon themselves the ideals of the king because there's something terribly wrong. But Jesus says they will be comforted. And we we struggle to have a sincere sorrow for sin and the sin of others. What is it that we're mourning? We live in a broken world. We have broken hearts. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel longed for a Messiah. They longed for a redeemer. They longed for a deliverer. Someone who would rescue them from their broken 
world and their broken heart. In Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, Isaiah speaks of the coming of the Messiah who will comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. So what is it that we're mourning? We begin to adopt Jesus's demeanor. His sorrow becomes our sorrow. His outlook becomes our outlook. The way that he sees brokenness and sin and pain becomes the way we look at it. In his wonderful, wonderful book, Chuck Colson spoke of of his coming to Christ. And and he relates this one... um, event that took place just shortly after World War II when Adolf Eichmann is caught and he is brought to trial and he is brought to trial for his crimes against humanity. And there was one particular person who was going to confront Eichmann. This particular man had lost his mother and lost his father and lost his family in the Holocaust. And He makes his way into the courtroom and he sees Adolf Eichmann for the first time since he was released from that Nazi prison camp. And he looks at him and he begins to shake and he begins to sob and he begins to weep. And as he begins to weep, copious tears, he continues to shake and all of a sudden he passes out. He faints dead away. And when they were trying to revive him, the people who were there in the courtroom were wondering what had caused this kind of incredible outburst of emotion. They were wondering, was it the pain and the trauma over losing his family? Was it the horrors of the tortures that he experienced that caused this kind of profound emotional outburst? And when he came to and he was able to coherently communicate... He said, no, it wasn't the loss of his family. And no, it wasn't any of those other things that you might think. It's he looked at Eichmann and for the first time he realized that he was just a simple, ordinary human being. He wasn't a godlike Nazi officer with supreme powers. He was a wicked man full of sin and wickedness. And the thing that overcame this man was the fact that he was a human and he was a a broken person and that he was a sinful person and he began to consider for the for one of the first times in his life what his own wickedness was his own sinfulness was he began to to shake and and tremble over what human beings can do to other human beings absent god and absent hope the problem in part is our refusal to accept God's revelation about sin. The Bible says that God hates it and we excuse it. Paul knew that it was an internal condition, an operating principle in every human being's life. In Romans chapter 7 verse 18, Paul says, I know that in me dwells no good thing. Sin is a heavy burden, according to Psalm 38, 4. A tyrannical master in Romans 6, 17. You were servants of sin, Paul wrote. The Bible speaks of sin as a lurking monster. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when God confronts Cain with his own wicked heart, he says, sin lies at the door and it is looking for you. Sin both accuses us and pursues us. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, Paul, writing to Timothy, speaks of sin going before us to judgment and how some men's sins follow them. Who mourns over sin? The person who sees it for what it really is in all of its terrible manifestations. And this is one of the reasons why people are so reluctant to teach about sin. One preacher was asked, why don't you ever talk about sin? And he goes, because it makes people feel bad. But when Jesus talks about sin, he also talks about comfort. 
Because as powerful as the first part is, the second part is just as powerful. Just like he uses the strongest possible word to describe mourning, he also uses the strongest possible word to describe the comfort that is provided for that person who is willing to see sin the way God sees sin. It's the word parakletos. It means the one who comes alongside to comfort. It's the one who comes alongside when you're broken down it becomes a title of the Holy Spirit who comes to you and provides for you what you need because with the recognition of sin comes the reality that you need to be forgiven and you see there's only one there's only one thing worse there's only one thing worse than pretending that sin isn't real or isn't a part of who you are or what you do. There's only one thing worse than that, and that's to to deny sin altogether. Because the moment that you deny that there is such a thing as sin, the moment that you deny that God has really been offended, guess what? You take away comfort and you take away hope because people who refuse to believe that there is such a thing as sin will never experience forgiveness because they don't see sin the way God sees sin. If there's one thing wonderful about sin, if you can say one thing wonderful about sin, it's that it can be forgiven. It can be washed. It can be gotten rid of. The Bible speaks of a true and a false mourning. A godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 10 when he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow. Sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The reason why the sorrow of the world produces death is because it's a regret. It's the kind of regret that you got caught and you're sorry. It's the kind of regret that says, wow, what I did was wrong. Now what's going to happen to me? It's not the kind of sorrow that says, What I did was wrong and what I did was evil. And so there's no forgiveness for the person who can't see sin for what it really is and for what it really does. The world has its own way of dealing with sorrow. Its own way of dealing with grief and pain. The way that the world deals with sorrow and grief and pain, the chief strategy is to avoid it, to numb it, to mask it, to deny it, to defy it. There's a reason why you like to go to comedies instead of tragedies. Who wants to be sad? And so people will go to a movie and they'll watch a sad movie, it might make them cry for a little while, but they realize that it's not real, that it's just a movie, and they get to walk away. People in the world hide their pain, and they hide from reality. But lying about your pain and lying about the sorrow doesn't make it go away. Peter mourned over his sin when he betrayed Jesus. Judas regretted his sin. Peter mourned over his sin and confessed it and was restored. And Judas regretted his sin and went and killed himself. You see, there's a kind of sorrow for what you've done where you wind up hurting others and you hurt yourself. And then there's the kind of sorrow that leads to a brokenness and a recognition of something having gone wrong. And for those people, there's comfort. So what in the world is Jesus asking us to do? The way to true happiness comes in a radical shift in our thinking. 
The human problem is sin. We have to see ourselves in its proper light. We have to see the world as it really is. And so that becomes part of the point. The moment that you see yourself the way you really are and you see the world the way that it is, you begin to mourn. Jesus, the Bible says, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Because Jesus could look out into the world and he could see what sin had done. The Bible speaks of Jeremiah as that weeping prophet because he sees what rebellion and disobedience does. And he weeps over the sin of the nation and and of the people. The poor in spirit submit to the king and his throne in verse 3. And then in verse 4, those who mourn anticipate God's Messiah who will save us from our sin, restore the kingdom, make the world right in verse 4. And for that reason, the Christian anticipates comfort. A comfort that comes from Christ. A comfort that provides relief. A comfort that provides consolation and peace. Jesus said, my peace I give you. And my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. It says in John chapter 14 verse 27. And for those of you who are troubled in your heart. Troubled in your circumstances and troubled over what sin has done, you can with great joy anticipate the fact that there is a God who loves you and who is willing to forgive you. We do all our mourning in this life, but as William MacDonald has so eloquently wrote, for unbelievers, today's grief is only a foretaste of eternal sorrow. You see, this is the difference between you mourning in this world over your sin versus those who will mourn about their sin in the next life. Remember, we've already talked about it. In heaven, no more tears. In the other place, unending tears. Our comfort is embedded in the assurance of our forgiveness and acceptance by God in Christ. And so in direct proportion to the morning comes this reality of drowning, if you will, in comfort. Because when you start to feel overwhelmed by your sin, Jesus says you can now become overwhelmed By the comfort that is provided by God. Because there is a comfort for each and every sin. That's the idea. And so he continues with happy while meek. Look what it says in verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And meek is perhaps one of the most misunderstood words in the entire New Testament. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the statement relates to another statement in Psalm chapter 37, verse 11, which says, but the meek will inherit the land. The psalm contrasts the meek with those who are wicked and those who are evil. In Psalm 37, the psalm gives the very definition of those who are meek. In Psalm 37, it says, They who trust in the Lord and do good, commit your way to the Lord and trust him. In this particular instance, the meek are those who have committed their way to the Lord. The meek are those who trust the Lord. The meek are those who, who do what's good. So the contrast between the meek and the, and the proud. The meek are those who with a submissive spirit in true humility Trust the Lord. The Old Testament uses the adjective meek to describe Moses in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. In Numbers chapter 12, it speaks of Moses being the meekest man in the whole world. Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble In spirit, why? What do Moses and Jesus have in common? 
both trust the Lord and submit to the Lord? What do the spiritual characteristics of gentleness and humility produce? It produces the ability to trust God, to commit to God. Both Moses and Jesus confront sin. So humility or meekness doesn't mean weakness. Both Moses and Jesus stand for what's right. They stand for the privileges of others. They refuse to assert their own will apart from God's revelation. Both Moses and Jesus live for the glory of God. They live to fulfill God's will. Both Moses and Jesus don't use violence to enforce God's will on other people. So meek means strength under control. If I were to think of a word that's the opposite of meekness, it would be undisciplined. If I were to use a word that means something like meekness, it would be a disciplined commitment to trust in the Lord. And so this is important. This is important for everyone who has ever said, You know, I find it difficult to trust people. I don't trust people. And I don't trust God. Well, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because when you don't trust God, it means an admission of pride and self-sufficiency. Well, who do you trust? Well, I trust me. And what are you trusting yourself for? Because clearly that means you haven't experienced the transparency that comes from the impoverishment that comes when you realize you have no spiritual resources and you've never mourned over sin because you don't understand what sin does and and how powerful it is and how wicked it is and what it does to you. What does the world say and what does the world believe? The world believes that's the proud that inherit the earth. It's the rich and the strong and the mighty who seize the planet and seizes its resources. It's the clever person and the self-confident person who rules. In this fallen world, self-sufficiency is a virtue and meekness is a vice. And so Jesus turns it on its head and says, no, pride is a vice. Self-sufficiency is a vice. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, because I will remove them from this city, those who rejoice in their pride, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. This is at a time when the city was being overwhelmed and overrun, and so the Lord makes a promise. Hey, guess what? There's going to be two kinds of people. The proud people are going to be destroyed, but the meek people, those who commit to God, those who trust in the Lord, they're the ones who are going to receive a a provision. So why are the meek, read humble, happy? They're happy because they trust the Lord. Why do they trust the Lord? Because they realize that only God is going to be able to take care of them. Only God is going to be able to make the provision. Why will they inherit the earth? Remember in the Old Testament, Abraham is promised a place. Remember, God says, trust me and I'll make a provision for you. There'll be a place for you. In the New Testament, that place includes a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. I'm going to suggest to you that the person who really trusts in the Lord Is there a place for them in this world? I think that there is. Is it wrong for you to want to have a husband? Is it wrong for you to want to have a wife? Is it wrong for you to want to have a family? Is it wrong for you to want to have a home? Is it wrong for you to want to have a secure place that you can call your own? No, none of those things are wrong. 
But Peter points out to this world and he says, it will pass away. It will be destroyed by fire. There is a sense in which this world is just a temporary place. But for those who trust in the Lord, they're going to inherit an eternal promise. In Titus 3.2 it says, Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable. Be gentle. Showing humility to all people. So the meek person is quick to forgive. The meek person exercises patience. The meek person exercises self-control. The meek person isn't easily provoked. The servant of the Lord must not strive, the Bible says, but be gentle with all people, apt to teach and be patient, and says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Why is the meek person quick to forgive? Why is the meek person not out for vengeance? Because they know that, that what Jesus said in Mark 6.14 is true. Forgive men their trespasses and your heavenly father will forgive you. The meek person is quiet. That is, the meek person studies to be quiet. It says in Psalm 4.4, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. The Bible speaks of the meek person as shutting their mouth and allowing God to speak. The implication being that they're willing to be taught by God and instructed by God. The meek inherit the land. The meek know where they're going. They're teachable. They have nothing to prove. They have purpose. They have meaning. They have significance. They're self-controlled rather than controlled by their emotion, controlled by their fear, controlled by the circumstance. The motto of the meek person is, in himself, nothing. In God, everything. And then Jesus goes on and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, wait a minute. How can you be happy when you're hungry? It all depends on what you're hungry for. See, on Sundays, I'm always hungry for spaghetti and meatballs. Or hot Italian sausage. Because I know that it's going to fill me up. And it's going to comfort me on top of that. One of the things I miss most about Christmas is my Nona, my grandma. When I was a little boy growing up, when we weren't at my grandma's, she would send me a tin of fig cookies, Italian fig cookies. And when I would put them in my mouth, it would make all of Christmas come to life. So, how can you be happy in hunger? It all depends on what you're hungry for. You see, in the broken world in which we live, there's real poverty, which leads to real hunger. In the spiritual world of the king and in the spiritual world in his kingdom, spiritual poverty leads to spiritual hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Jesus is speaking of those who really desire God's rule in their life and in this world. So who are the hungry? The hungry are those people who really, really want God's rule in their life and they want God's rule in this world. What does Jesus mean by the word righteousness? Does it have something to do with goodness? Does it have something to do with morality? Does it have something to do with purity? I'm going to suggest to you that goodness and morality and purity are all components, but it really isn't the meaning. In the Old Testament, 
Righteousness was a legal term that described relationship. It was a judicial term that you would use with courts and judges in terms of ethical or fair behavior between people. So righteousness was a word that was used to describe the way people were supposed to act in relationship to each other. And then it came to mean the way in which we act towards God and God acts towards us. And so it came to have a covenant meaning. God shows up and he says, I'm going to save you, Noah. God shows up and he says, I'm going to walk with you, Abraham. God shows up and he says, I'm going to march with you, Joshua, into the promised land. God shows up and he makes a deal with Isaac and Jacob, with Judah and Joseph. He shows up and he says, look, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to be with you. In the New Testament, Paul expands the legal concept and applies it to the person and the work of Jesus. And so Jesus shows up up so that we know what God is like and what God's character is like and what God's heart is like and what God's will is like. And so in the New Testament, it came to mean everything that Jesus would do in terms of his death on the cross, in terms of his resurrection from the dead, in terms of that death, which when, which when we have communion, remember, we, we get together and we, Jesus breaks bread and he gives it to his disciples and he says, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for, for you. And again, he takes a cup, he gives thanks and praise and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. He expands the covenant to include his own death. So in order for sinners to be righteous, that means right with God, God's going to have to justify the sinner. That's what it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. What does Paul mean when he says God makes right justifies the ungodly based on those who believe in him. God applies Christ's righteousness, his obedience, his guiltlessness, his obedience and innocence becomes our obedience and innocence when we trust him. So what does Jesus mean by righteousness? Does he mean the covenant relationship between God and his people that's established by God? Does he anticipate the restoration to wholeness between God and man? And then the way human beings are to treat creation and to treat each other? It might incorporate that, but I'm going to suggest to you that it means the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a place where God rightly relates to people and people rightly relate to God and because they rightly relate to God and they rightly relate to each other there is peace the Lord promises satisfaction for those who cultivate a deep desire for God and the things of God Warren Wiersbe said a true Christian has an appetite for spiritual things. Ask God or ask people what they desire and you'll know what they're like. Think about this again. A true Christian has an appetite for spiritual things. So what is your passion? What is it that you long for? You might say, well, I want honesty in my life, or I want integrity in the way I deal with others, or I want social justice for the world. And the truth is, unbelievers can want honesty and integrity and social justice. And so whatever this is, it's an honesty and an integrity and a real way that real people relate to one another based on what 
God has done. The non-Christian can desire change. The non-Christian can even hope for honesty, integrity, and justice. The non-Christian can wage war against poverty and hunger and homelessness and social injustice. They can envision a world of equality and justice. But there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no coming into a right relationship with God based on what Jesus has done. They can long for peace. But it's never going to be a peace that's permanent. It's never going to be a peace that's going to hold up. One of the ways that you can tell your own spiritual condition is what you're passionate about. Gamaliel Bradford wrote about people who have, quote, a thirst that no earthly stream can satisfy, a hunger that must feed on Christ or die, unquote. And so if you're satisfied with reading a little bit of scripture and throwing up a haphazard prayer, if you're satisfied with staying as far as possible from God, from Jesus, from spiritual things, then it tells you something about yourself. But look what Jesus says. The people who are starving for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. The people who are starving for righteousness. How do you know you're starving for righteousness? It's because the only thing that matters to you is what it means to have a right relationship with God and for what other people have a right relationship with God. And so the danger lies with those who stress being righteous, but they neglect doing righteousness. It leads to the error of false assurance, the error that believing in Jesus exonerates us from ever doing anything that's right. In other words, I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible doesn't teach just a simple thought process whereby you go, oh yeah, God, you're wonderful. And oh yeah, Jesus is right. Righteous, but it never ever translates into a different way in which you live. Jesus doesn't see that kind of Christianity. But what about the people who deny God, ignore God, refuse to live according to His will? They won't be filled, they'll embark on a journey. Of constantly wanting more and more and more. The unbeliever and the make-believer wants more stuff. They want more power. They want more glory. They want more fame. They want at least a thousand people on their Facebook page who are friends. Even if they're not really friends. They want more And more and more. In one sense, righteousness involves the mind. The scripture speaks of being renewed in the spirit of your mind in Ephesians 4. It speaks of being renewed in knowledge in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Why? Because you'll be satisfied. Look what it says at the end. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Romans 15, 14. Full of goodness. Filled with knowledge. Ephesians 3, 19. Filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Colossians 1.9, filled with the knowledge of His will. Acts 13.52, filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. 
full of joy in the Holy Spirit, full of knowledge, full of righteousness, full of, of, of the fullness of God, filled with goodness, filled with knowledge. Think about it. Glad in grief, verse 4. The reward, the kingdom of heaven. Happy in humility, verse 5. The reward, a life of comfort. Satisfied while starving, in verse 6. The reward, spiritual satisfaction. And so the Lord Jesus knows that those who are conscious of their spiritual need, poor in spirit, verse 3, are willing to express that need. They mourn. And remember here, the expression of mourning isn't something quiet or something that you keep to yourself. No one, no one, at least I hope there's no one here who is so wicked and so heartless that when you see a woman sobbing because her husband is dead or her child is dead or you see a father who is broken over the fact of what he or she has, has lost that no one, no one, no one criticizes a person who sobs and grieves over the fact that they've lost something that was so important to their life. Jesus speaks of a spiritual mourning, a kind of undoing that takes place to prove the spiritual need. Lyttelton of Eton paraphrased verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for them the victory will ultimately be given. There's a kind of mysterious strength that resides in gentleness. It's pictured in the New Testament with Jesus, his hands bound before Pilate. And there is Pilate who thinks that he is the ruler in this Roman province. He has the pomp and the power and the military and the borders and the favor and all that goes with it. And here is Jesus, here is Jesus, here is Jesus. Pilate thinks that he can make people do what he wants based on power and authority. And Jesus, through meekness, will subdue the human heart forever. You see, meekness understands that sometimes the only choice that we have is the choice of what we're going to believe and how we're going to react. Chuck Swindoll wrote, quote, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Swindoll wrote, Attitude to me is more important than the past, more important than education, more important than money, more important than circumstances, more important than failures, more important than success, more important than what other people think or say or do. He writes, I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. The only thing I would take exception with Pastor Chuck is, I think life is 1% of what happens to me and 99% of how I react to it. There's going to come a time when life is going to invite you to go in a direction that you never wanted for yourself. It might come in a doctor's office when the doctor says, you have cancer. It might come from a spouse who says, I'm done with you. It might come in a circumstance where you have no option because you're driving and you never, ever, ever wanted that other person to hit you. And you don't get to be in control. And you don't get to make the choice. It's at that moment that whatever's inside of you will come out. And if what's inside of you is grace and mercy and peace and confident trust, then you'll be fine. You see, the most courageous decision that you'll ever make the most courageous decision that you will ever make is the decision to allow yourself 
to see yourself the way God sees you. And to see your sin the way God sees your sin. And to see God the way he reveals himself in the Bible. In the way that he reveals himself in the person of Jesus. In the life of Jesus. In the sacrifice of Jesus. In the resurrection of Jesus. And the moment that you do that, you'll start to cultivate a healthy hunger which will result in a profound satisfaction. So, glad in grief, verse 4. Happy in humility, verse 5. Satisfied while starving in verse 6. But there's a reward. The kingdom in verse 4. A life of comfort in verse 5. Spiritual satisfaction in verse 6. Are you ready to get your citizenship papers? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I know that you want to issue us a passport into this kingdom. But it's a kingdom that's so different from every other earthly kingdom. It's a place where you're the king. It's a place where you are loved. It's a place where we can see ourselves and see our sin and see our Savior the way you've always intended. And so, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what you would do. That you would give us that supernatural ability. So that, Lord, we would long for the things that are important to you. And that we would care about the things that you care about. And that we would be what you've always intended us to be. Citizens. Children. In a new world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.